we need to really set up our institutions and the people within those institutions to be able to take risks on innovation instead of rewarding them for staying the safe course. And also with startups, on the other hand, you need to make sure you're not building a wave and then trying to put water underneath it. You need to be able to go beyond just the transaction of money. But I think making sure that you give the time and I think also the empathy, because the person you're talking to, one of the biggest misconceptions with, say, B2B sales or B2G sales is people are like, oh, well, I'm selling to a business, but businesses are still made up of people. And if you want to build that relationship and that trust, it takes two. You can't just expect the government because they're the ones that are omnipotent to take all of that on. You also need to be able to take and give as a small business, even if it's more taxing for you as a person, because it will pay off. Hi, Smart Community friends. In this episode of the Smart Community Podcast, I have a wonderful talk with Emily Bobbis. Emily is the co-founder of Compass IoT, a multi-award winning road intelligence startup that helps transport professionals improve road safety, transport and infrastructure through connected vehicle data and is the perfect guest for our first episode of Mobility May. Emily begins by telling us about her background in startups and her passion for innovation, mentorship, entrepreneurship, and putting ideas into practice before she tells us what a smart community means to her. Emily then shares a bit about her own startup, Compass IoT, and some of the exciting projects they've been working on, and also explains what connected vehicle data is. Emily then dives a little bit deeper into how she got into startups and in particular how she started her own and discusses some of the surprising things she learnt in her experiences working in startups and with data. We finish our chat discussing the emerging trends of digitising intelligent transport systems, building infrastructure to better support autonomous vehicles and the trend of push data. As always, we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns, and smart cities. It's where we live, work, and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Emily. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I am very well. I'm excited to be recording this podcast with you. I think we were just talking before hitting record and it's been a while. We've been talking for a long time, but we haven't actually, you know, sat down virtually to do this or do something else. But anyway, there's many things to come, I'm sure, because I've been following along your work and journey on LinkedIn for a long time. So yeah, I'm excited to have you on the pod. So let's just jump in. Tell us about yourself, what your background is and what you're passionate about. Sure. So uh, so my name is Emily. I am a founder or a co-founder of a road intelligence startup called Compass IoT. Uh, so what that is, it's a multi-award winning startup based in Sydney. We create software that uses connected vehicle data to help transport professionals do things from improving road safety, uh, cities and mobility. Uh, In terms of about me, I'm pretty early career and like the entirety of my career has been spent in startups, I think, to the absolute 
terror of my parents who have very like white collar jobs. And that was always like the, the career path. I was like, I'll do my my postgrad and then I'll, I'll get a grad role and I'll go and, I don't know, be a miscellaneous consultant somewhere. Didn't do any of that. So did the postgrad and that, that was about the only thing that went to plan. But in terms of, I think, what I'm passionate about, there's three things. So the first one is innovation. Doesn't necessarily have to be in smart cities, just innovation in general, although there is a, a focus in, in the transport area because that's just where I happen to work. The second one is mentorship and entrepreneurship, particularly for students and women in the space. So I do quite a lot of things involved with UTS startups and also the University of Sydney's Genesis program, which is like this pitch comp that they hold every year. Historically, huge gender gaps, not a lot of women in startups, particularly in the C-suite. So just trying to like give back, I guess, to that part of the community. And I think the last thing is that I'm passionate about doing I think it sounds a bit weird, but I think there's a lot of people who talk a lot and particularly if you've come from a corporate background, there's so much discussion and like really great ideas, but then not a lot of it's actually put into practice. And if my co-founder ends up listening to this episode, he'd be like, yeah, that sounds about right. Like Emily, like just doing things and like efficiency and like type A kind of stuff. It's just great. Ideas are great, but if unless you act on them, they're, they're kind of a little bit pointless. So they're probably, that's probably me in a nutshell. Yeah, I love that. I totally agree with you. It's like even in the smart city space, my community space, ideas are amazing and we need them and we want to draw them out from people, particularly who may not think that they have a position at the table or a voice. But if we don't actually do like the work or the action, then what's the point? And I totally agree with you. I think, and, and also that's the hard part, actually. The hard part is running a project. It may be the most exciting technology you've ever seen before or whatever but you still have to run a project and get it done at the end of the day so we need doers for sure have the conversation but then what can we take from those conversations to then actually hit the ground running or the rubber hitting the road as we say but yeah thanks for sharing that's awesome I actually was talking on LinkedIn and I saw that you were you did Chinese language or Chinese studies I also did Chinese studies, just a little though. I just did it as my minor, my engineering degree, and I just just loved it. The language component, as in one day I was doing engineering and doing, you know, uh, stresses and beams and whatever, and the next minute it was like, oh, I'm going to learn how to say my name today, like, you know, or how to introduce myself, yeah. It's good, like, juxtaposition, I think, having, having like, your, your major, which is what you focus on, and then just having this really random kind of minor, something like a language, and everyone's like, why did you do that? But also kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People are like, but why? And I'm like, well, why not? But it, it actually helped me to get my, like, to jump into the smart city space because I was so interested in language and different cultures and things when signed up in South Korea, which is obviously very different. But I went, that was amazing. But I then learnt Korean because I know I knew Chinese, not very well, but I knew some I knew the basics, not even the basics. I knew something. I actually was quite easy, not easy, to learn Korean because it's kind of it's based on anyway, so that's why I did Chinese language so that I could one day do what I'm doing today because it led me down that path. So you never know what how it's going to end up. You know, if I hadn't studied Chinese, maybe I had I wouldn't even look at, you know, different cultures and things and working in different spaces and 
Anyway, this isn't about me. This is not a podcast about Zoe Ether. So let's keep going. Tell me, what is a smart community to you? So this is like a big question. I kind of sat on this one for a while. I was like, this one needs a little bit of pre-work. But So I kind of nailed it down to, I think a smart community is one that is agile, um, dynamic, and I think has a, a flexible mindset or at least the capacity to embrace change. I also think there needs to be like diverse decision makers involved in that process to make sure that it benefits everybody within the community or people that are like passing through a community. So I don't think it's a static thing and I think the definition will potentially change over time, but I also don't think you can just be future focused or embrace future focused ideas if you're very like static. It's it's like the future is created by the actions of today. So if you do nothing, then you get nothing. Or if you do nothing, you get this future that you don't want because, you know, it's still progressing and you get a future that someone else decides for you or that, you know, the big tech companies might decide this is where we're going or whoever it happens to be. But no, I really like what you said there. It's like we're shaping the future now. So we're in the present and we're doing things now to create this future. There's, yes, we need to think about what we want in the future, but it's what we're doing now that will actually create that. So, yeah. Great. Perfect. Yeah. I think as well with those trends, like people feel like they have to follow trends to support them. So say like car ownership, if you're like, oh, more people are owning cars, which means we have to create more roads, but it's like, what's your actual like goal for the future? Do you actually want this trend to continue or do you want to do something to stop that trend? So I think a lot of people feel like when you say future focused, you're like, oh yeah, you're looking at what trends are going up and you're matching those. It's like, well, no, some trends are going up. You don't want them to go up. So you do the opposite, which seems counterintuitive, but like it's part of it. Well, it's like intervening, right? It's like, okay, we're seeing this. This is maybe not the way we're like, you know, we're increasing emissions time and time and time again each year it's going up. So it's like, okay, that's a trend, but that's not one we want to continue to follow. It's not like, okay, well, what are we going to do about you know, when the world is 3.5 degrees hotter, what are we going to do about that? No, let's try and intervene now so that we can reduce that number as much as possible. Okay, (laughs) tell me about you now. Tell me about your company and what you do now and some of the really exciting projects that you've been working on. Yeah, sure. So I gave the 30-second pitch of the intro, so I won't redo it and make everyone listen to that again. But what we basically do is use connected vehicle data to make things better in cities. I think that's the the core of it. And oh, like, I think connected vehicle data is like one of the next big things. And I think people are talking about it, but they're not necessarily understanding the actual just behavior that it is and the impacts that it can have. So it can impact, and we're doing some of these things, it can impact areas as broad as like origin destination for freight. So you can see what roads are particular freight vehicles taking are they taking the ones you want them to or are they taking side roads that don't actually support the weight of that vehicle other ones include testing out whether your vms signage is working so are people actually slowing down when they see breakdown ahead and how the different language and the words that you're using on those signs actually affects driver behavior my favorite one that we've been working on well, actually two favorites i lied one of them is about like asset maintenance so i think you've probably i mean everyone knows we've had a lot of rain lately and we've had like i think the same amount of rain that we normally get in a year within like four months or something ridiculous so roads are just getting absolutely battered with potholes and just degradation of assets and we did a couple of studies up in lismore to check the road quality 
Uh, and that was just basically using connected vehicles embedded gyroscopes to be like, okay, what's like the pitch roll and the yaw of the vehicle and like an x-axis drop and g-force and just a whole bunch of other different factors to check whether or what the extent of the damage was from those flood events. And then my most favorite one is about it's providing a leading indicator for potentially unsafe roads. So you probably know that a lot of road safety stuff is proactive. There was actually a really funny or morbidly funny Twitter thread about traffic engineer bingo. And somebody had said, how many more people need to die before we do something? And then the traffic engineer replies four within the next calendar year, which is so morbid, but it's a really accurate reflection of how black spot funding is allocated. You actually need people to die in order to apply for funding. And it can just take two to three years of people dying in order to have enough data to identify an unsafe road. And then on top of that, road trauma and and road accidents are the biggest killer of Australians under the age of 15, second biggest killer of young Australians between 15 to 24, and disproportionately kill women. So it's like this huge chunk of like women and young Australians that are being affected because we're using reactive approaches. And that's not anyone's fault. That was just, we didn't have access to that before, but now we do. And I think just being able to apply that into the space is super, super cool and really important. Yeah, I think it's super cool. I mean, as a fellow, well, as a, not, I'm not a traffic engineer, but as a fellow asset management and signage lover, and also uh, I think, you know, in that transport and mobility space, using data to make things safer, make things better and more accessible is really important. Now, I just wanted to go back and in case people don't know, but connected vehicle data, what is it? How do you get it? And what's happening with it at the moment? Yes, good question. Probably should have explained that as well. So connected vehicles, like really high level, are just most cars that have a SIM card and that SIM card allows them to connect to the internet and transfer data to and from a manufacturer or what's called an OEM, like an original equipment manufacturer. The kind of data you get depends on the vehicle, the make and model. So most of the time you'll get the speed, the bearing, the lap and longitude of a vehicle. You also are now starting to see in newer models different kinds of more complex data. So we talked about the roll pitch and the yaw of a vehicle. You get acceleration or or G-force and you get like drops in the X and the Y axis of a vehicle. So it's, it's quite complex. And if you look at some of the newer data sets, particularly for like a Tesla, you can get everything from like, are the lights on the car on? Are they in ludicrous mode? Is the sunroof open? It just It's wild. It's basically a computer on four wheels at this point. So that's, but high level connected vehicle is one that has an internet connection that can send and receive data. And then how do you access that data then? Are you working with OEMs or government agencies or better both? Yeah, so in terms of accessing the data, it's a bit of both. So we chat to the car manufacturers or the OEMs, uh, enter into contracts with them, and then ingest that data into our systems. There is also data being shared between us and, say, government. So we use that as control data. So the tube counts and stuff like that, we can take that data and put that in and then use it as a cross-comparison. So, yeah, a bit bit of public and a bit of private data ingestion happening. Yeah, cool. And how do you deal with things like privacy and, you know, personally sensitive data? Yeah, sure. So there's, what do you call it? There are processes put in place on the OEM side as well. So like 
metadata instead of like actual points. It's all anonymized. Uh, it's scrambled, so you can't tell VIN numbers and things like that. And then in our side, there's also things to prevent people from reverse engineering the data and things like that. Uh, so it's probably two of the biggest ones are first house and or first intersection, tenth house and first intersection. So what you would do is you would clip the trip other way around so that you don't get to see where that person has started the trip and where they're ending up. Not that that really matters anyway in the way that we've applied the data. We're not interested in exactly kind of where someone's starting. You're interested in the aggregate. And then the other one is the first intersection. So say you're on a rural country road and the 10th house is 500 kilometres away, it would be the first road that it would kind of snip that trip off so that you there is some protection on that side as well. But there are a lot of technical algorithms and stuff in play at the back end that I don't entirely understand enough to explain them, but there's definitely progress in place because I know that data security and privacy is quite a big issue. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's like that's the first question people ask and it's about having an answer and, and being able to, I guess, I know the general public being able to ask those questions these days because we are increasing our like, you know, data literacy, which I think is really important. But then also, why do we need this data? Why are we using this data? What are we doing this for? And being able to explain those benefits as well. And then people can understand like, and I think the more and more we are able to do that and have those conversations and the better outcomes we can get too. So yeah, no, really interesting. So how did you decide that this startup was the one you wanted to start up? How did that come to be? Great question. So <laughs> finally, even though I have no formal training in transport or data, but both startups I've worked in have actually been mobility focused tech businesses. <laughs> So one of the first ones I worked at, who with, with actually the same co-founder that I'm with now, Angus, he had started Airbike, which was a, a bike sharing service when the whole thing was just like taking off. We got like a monopoly contract down in Canberra. So we were the first ones to kind of help set up the infrastructure down there, which was a really cool experience. And it kind of demonstrated how much growth there was in the mobility and the transport industry and how much even the government just didn't know how people were moving around cities. Uh, so Airbyte was, you know, really fun, a really good intro, I think, to mobility because it came from like a B2C perspective where you're like talking to uni, other uni students at the time about bike riding. And then from that, we sold Airbike, hard to scale business, let's put it that way. It's still in operation, which is quite quite nice to see you see them around Sydney and every time I go down to Canberra I'm like oh I made that that was fun and then we sold that business and we used that money as the seed capital to start Compass uh, and it was basically just trying to figure out how can we apply that we now know there is a gap in mobility and and how we can understand better about how things are being used in infrastructure and how people are actually moving versus how we've designed things for people to move around on uh, we actually talked to a, a traffic consultant, Nick, at the beginning stages, and he was like, oh, this is such a cool idea. Why haven't you thought about connected cars? This is like this big thing coming and just like, he used the phrase tracking cars, which is not correct because we don't really track cars. But he was like, oh, what about like vehicles and understanding how vehicles moved? And we're like, oh my God, that's actually a really good idea. And Nick, who has like 25 plus years as a traffic engineer and worked in government and councils, he actually left his job to now work for us, which is quite nice. So we brought that capability in and I always learn something new when I'm talking to him. He's like 
the dad in the company because everyone else is like in their 20s. But yeah, that's kind of how it came about. Started with bike sharing, found that really cool, sold that, moved into Compass. And then we were just kind of like, oh, well, let's see how this goes. And it just happened to kind of work out and fill in a, a need in the market. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I'm keen to hear some of the surprising things that you've found, either in the data itself, like, you know, specifically about mobility or just like, I guess, in this whole process. I think the biggest one is that innovation doesn't equal acceptance. Like you can have this super cool product and at the beginning you might not have a lot of evidence of value. You can see like, I think this is going to provide value. But even if you do have evidence that it provides value, there's so much behavioral and mental shift that needs to happen in order for people to actually integrate that. And I think particularly in an industry like transport that hasn't been disrupted in quite a long time, there was just a lot of mental hurdles for people to get over. But that also, I think, comes back to us as a business where we have to make sure that we're providing enough support and education about the innovation that we're making. You can't just like chuck new tech at someone or new data like GeForce and expect people to understand how to extract value from that. So I think there's definitely that education section that that comes in, which is super important. I think a lot of people miss. But yeah, definitely innovation doesn't equal acceptance, which is really, really painful. But I mean, the seatbelt had the same problem. Like people weren't willing to use it for the first like 25 years after it was first invented. So it's not a problem for just startups and tech. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. And I think Yeah, it's an interesting one, particularly when you have to do a business case or whatever. It's like, I need to know the value that I will get from this. And I think that's what stops a lot of innovation, right? But we, you you know, you can can understand both sides of it, but that risk adversity for them, like the innovation is actually increasing the risk appetite. Like that's actually an innovation in government to be allowed to and more empowered to increase your risk appetite knowing that it may not work and we know that, but we're going to test and try and see what it does and measure and monitor. And I think that's the biggest thing. When things aren't measured and monitored, then you can't show value. It may be, oh, well, we'll, this, you know, this or this or this happened. And that's a change, right? That's that's the agile kind of, you know, and iteration is just like you can't just hire a consultant to provide the whole project and, you know, oh, good, we innovated. It's like, no, that's not, that's not how it works. You don't actually know what that end product is going to actually look like. And I think I see, I've seen that shift and change in the last few years, even in the work that I do, which is, you know, an innovative space, but the methodology of delivering and working with clients and the projects is also changing and becoming different and more innovative whatever you want to call it, my general place, blah, 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 blah. But you, like that mindset shift is sometimes the biggest barrier. It's not the technology. We say that, but it's not even like delivering the project. It's shifting that mindset that it's going to get messy. And it's not that we don't know what's, what's going on. We know that the process is not set, but we, we're all trying to achieve a certain outcome. And over time, we might shift and change that too. And then what we, but what we do deliver is that, that goal that we're really seeking to achieve or we have to sidestep and go, well, actually, this isn't what we're doing now. We're going to do this. And building that trust to be able to go along the journey is so important. And I think within a startup, but then when you're working with big traditional clients, government, big industries, OEMs, et cetera, 
you also then have to support them on that mindset change as well. And sometimes you have to support yourself like to do that. You know, you go, oh, can this really, can we actually do this? Like I trust myself to be able to do this, but then you kind of go, oh, hang on, maybe, maybe I am crazy. And so it's like this weird, you know, you've got the product, you've got the mindset, you, all, all these things and you become all these different people and all these different roles. And yeah, it's a fun but challenging and like, I don't know what the word is, like interesting experience in delivering such new things. And, and also sometimes it's not actually new things. It's just a new way to do something with stuff that we've had before. But now we have the data to be able to make a decision about it. Yeah, to- I think you hit it on the head when you said trust and empathy. Like there's two sides to it where we need to really set up our institutions and the people within those institutions to be able to take risks on innovation instead of rewarding them for staying the safe course. And also with startups, on the other hand, you need to make sure you're not building a wave and then trying to put water underneath it. It's You need to be able to go beyond just the, the transaction of money. But I think making sure that you give the time and I think also the empathy, because the person you're talking to, one of the biggest misconceptions with say B2B sales or B2G sales is people are like, oh, well, I'm selling to a business. But it's like, businesses are still made up of people. And if you want to build that relationship and that trust, you re- it takes two. You you can't just expect the government because they're the ones that are, I don't know, omnipotent to take all of that on. You also need to be able to take and give as a small business, even if it's more kind of taxing for you as a person, because it will pay off. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think like, and yeah, I, I'm an engineer and so like the rigor element is really important to me too. So it's not just like, oh, we'll just throw money here, there and everywhere and see what sticks. It's like, well, no, it's about structure and rigor. And often I find like it's actually at the end of the day, it's time and focus of people on the project or involved in the project or buying into the project. If you've got enough time, you've got enough focus, then you can pepper in the expertise that you need then that's, you know, how it can kind of work. But if you don't, if because we're all so busy and we're doing this, that and the other, if you can't focus enough energy and time and resources to it, then that's, which is sounds so boring, but it's so true, you know, like that's actually what makes a successful project or not. And then also the iteration and that process, it's like really being honest and building trust and, and but also the empathy keep those check-ins are so important along the way because if something isn't working you're not necessarily saying oh it's your fault that this isn't work it's like okay well this isn't working what's the solution like what do we do to put us back in the right direction or, or whatever the case is but you can only do that if you're having if you really trust both parties and both sides and also the yeah the measuring and monitoring is also really important even in that like element as well it's like it's not like, oh, this feels something. It's like, oh, no, we, we looked at, you know, the numbers and the, and the stories are also important, of course, but it's like how do we then shift this and then we can actually say, oh, well, now we're on, you know, a different path or the right path or whatever. And another really boring thing is with the data, like the quality element of that as well and the rigor behind that, I think we're still building that, right? Like building a bridge, there's certain standards that you need to meet, there's certain checks and balances and I think in the data space, we're still building that. Like, And like you said earlier, hopefully, and I didn't just think of another interview, we're, we're flying the plane as we're building it, right? Or you did say that earlier, right? 
I don't think I did, but I've I've definitely used that phrase for like multiple different things. So it still applies. So yeah, totally. I must have seen it like another interview that you did or something. Anyway, okay, I'm talking too much, but yeah, I think there's so much in that. And yeah, I think it's a really interesting conversation. So I think if people only want to jump into the smart city space, smart, you know, they're like, oh, technology, blah, blah, blah. But there's so many other things that people can add. So speaking of things that we can add, uh, let's zoom to the future. Nice segue. What are the emerging trends that people aren't talking about enough? Gosh, so I kind of talked about connected vehicles and how I feel like people are talking about it, but not to the extent of like it's literally a tsunami of proportions kind of thing. But I also think a lot of people aren't talking about digitising intelligent transport systems, particularly with a focus on data or I think connected vehicles is a great, or autonomous vehicles actually is a better example where we were building these really high-tech cars and putting them on roads that were not built for them. And I think there's been a bit of a paradigm shift where now it's the opposite and we're trying to now build up our road infrastructure as much as we can because that would be huge to replace like all the roads, trying to build up the infrastructure to support these vehicles better. I know, for example, Transport for New South Wales is like re-digitizing the entire SCAT system. Like they're redoing the whole thing. And I'm like, that's a huge task and putting it all in the cloud. And it's just, nobody's talking about that. I don't, because people haven't really talked about SCATs for ages because it's just been already in the system and embedded. Most people in the world don't know what SCATs is, is number one. Yeah. But it even like doesn't exist in a lot of countries. So you can't blame them. Like, we have a friend, weird tangent, but he's a priest in the St. Augustine's order. So he's frequently flying to and from Rome and like doing a whole bunch of priesty things. And he's saying it's actually worse to travel in off-peak in Rome than it is to travel in peak time, just because if you travel in off-peak, you get every single red light. But if you travel in peak time, because there's more traffic, the lights actually are better calibrated. So like digitizing the SCAT system, which is what they don't have in Rome, I think would be nuts. Like that's kind of huge task, first of all, but I think it has the potential to like expand the capabilities of that system. So I think besides connected vehicles, digitizing intelligent transport systems or ITS is, is probably the big ones. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, one, it's something that people don't think about because they're just in a car walking or cycling and they're interacting with this infrastructure, not necessarily thinking that it's, I don't know, in any way something that they need to think about because other people think about that. But when we talk about SCATs, audience members, we're talking about the traffic signals and there's many things that traffic signals can do. So there's different phases and, and timing. So when a green light or a green, you get a green arrow, or you get a green light, et cetera. So those things can be changed based on the traffic flows, et cetera and becoming more and more smart over time where the sensors in the road and that type of thing. And actually, a lot of the stuff they've used for years and years and years. But you're right, in peak time, there's more cars. But yeah, off peak time, you know, you don't want it just to do the same phase when there's only one car there, for example. And the phasing, I'm talking about red, orange, green uh, lights uh, in a traffic signal, um, traffic light. But there's lots we can do. And connected vehicles, Autonomous vehicles, there's a thing called CITS, which is Cooperative Intelligent Transport System, which Queensland is doing a lot in, actually New South Wales is doing a lot in as well, which means that the vehicles can 
share information with the traffic signals so they can talk to each other, they can talk vehicle to vehicle, vehicle to infrastructure. And what they can do is create better efficiencies but also give people warnings to say there's a red light runner, for example, and I'm driving, you know, one way and this car is not slowing down. That car can get a warning and say, hey, there's a red light, slow down. But if they keep going, then the other vehicles at the intersection can get a warning to say, hey, red light runner. And to extend that further, maybe all the lights go red so then nobody's getting injured. And, you know, all this stuff is continuing to build and, and develop in that space as well. And also, like, it's there may be, like, it's using a certain technology at the moment, but that will continue to build as well as, as the uh, 4 and 5 or 5G gets faster. It's like this, it, we need instantaneous kind of message being sent, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of hap- there's lots of stuff happening in that space. And I think the other thing too, and, and you're talking about traffic data and people go, oh, you know, cars, great, but what does that mean for all the rest of the stuff? But public transport data, you know, freight data, like you were talking about, these are all, and cars on roads, obviously, these are all things that are currently interacting with our transport network. So the more we know about them, the better decisions we can make. So then we can make more walkable neighbourhoods. We can make you know, better cycling facilities based on evidence and, and data that they'll actually be used and you know, maybe they're the safest uh, approach or whatever the case is. So I think there's so much opportunity that it's like it's, we don't just have to, it's not just about cars. And I think that that's probably questions you get as well, like cars, 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 why do you care so much about cars? It's like, well, we know we can collect that data from them as that continues to improve, but then what? Yeah, how can we make better decisions with that data, which is why we need more people in the convo that are thinking about active travel and sustainability and all those type of things. It's not just a you know a traffic engineer. We love them, of course, but we need different voices and different heads in that conversation too. I think you also pulled out another emerging trend that not a lot of people talk about is most of the time when we're talking about taking vehicle data, we're talking about taking and pulling it, but there's now the ability to push data as well that you've said you know like not to repeat you just to it warning warning signs to vehicles uh just basically what you would have in the infrastructure getting pushed to the car instead of just taking so that's definitely another really big trend that i'm glad you mentioned because i totally forgot about it <laughs> no but i think you've explained it in a better way as well because people can kind of get that push and pull is really important pull and push because, yeah, you're right, that push is is the newer trend and it's like a push notification essentially. But then we have to also think about all the driver distraction and that type of stuff. So then you have all the human factors involved in that too. However, we are looking at signs now. The other thing, I guess, if we're able to push into our vehicles uh, when we are more mainstream, et cetera, that big, massive infrastructure that costs a lot, a lot, a lot of money like those big BMS signs or the ones over the road or whatever, you know, millions of dollars worth of structure and signage. Can we reallocate? And maybe, you know, sounds a bit daft to reallocate road on a major highway, you know, space. But the more we can do that and the more we can reduce the physical infrastructure potentially, and again, this is, we're kind of future gazing a little bit here, but if you can reduce one of those and then spend that on a cycleway or whatever the case is, we can continue to progress to build better better cities and regions and towns in the future. Absolutely. Emily, it was so great to chat with you. I feel like we could talk for a, long, a lot more time. You're based in Sydney, right? Yes. Cool. I'll let you know when I'm back down there again. 
got flights booked at some point. But yeah, no, really great chat with you. And yeah, let's have another combo. We're in the same field, the same space. And I know you're doing awesome, awesome stuff. So yeah, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. No worries. Thanks for having me. It was a really fun chat. Well, hang on. I only have one last question. Nearly forgot to ask it to you. How can people connect with you? Sure. So uh, LinkedIn is probably the best one. So you can either do it by my personal profile or by Compass IoT's profile, or you can visit Compass's website, which is compassiot.com.au. Perfect. Well, we will put the links in the show notes so people can click where and find you. We'll also put the link to your podcast in there as well, because we need more podcasters in the world sharing amazing information and stories and interviews, and particularly in this space, I think, to get more people involved. So Thanks for doing what you do. And I look forward to our next conversation. Yeah, me too. It'll be exciting. We'll talk soon. Bye. The Smart Community Podcast is brought to you by My Smart Community. If you're trying to deal with disruption, not sure what technologies to buy, need to facilitate genuine collaboration, then we can help. Email hello at mysmart.community or head to www.mysmart.community forward slash consulting. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community slash podcast. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community. You can also find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn and Twitter at SmartComHQ. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we would love for you to leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears and eyes. So thank you for your support. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for.